From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. In Adam's absence today, that guy is just such a world traveler. Today on the pod, we're happily joined once again by Vine Pair writer at large, Dave Infante. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, we're always so glad to have you. Yeah, writer at large in charge, I feel like should be your official title. Ooh, I'll take it. <laughs> um, before we jump in today's, uh, into today's topic, what have you guys been up to? What have you been drinking lately? Dave, you moved since we last since you last joined us, right? That's right. I that guess go? since the last time I was uh, in front of your audience, uh, auditorially speaking, yeah, I moved from Charleston, South Carolina up to suburban New Jersey, which is where I grew up. I'm actually living with my parents at the ripe old age of 33. Uh, it's temporary, I swear. And uh, just to forestall any jokes about working in the basement, no, I actually have my own bedroom that I've converted into an office. Thank you very much. So I get plenty, nice. plenty of sunlight, just like a house plant. Um, <laughs> what am I drinking these days? I've been drinking a lot of boxed wine. Uh, I've been drinking a lot of, yeah, a lot of Boda Box lately. Uh, you know, there, it's just so economical. Uh, <laughs> one box is four bottles of wine. Can't go wrong. And I find that suburban lifestyle suits uh, boxed <laughs> boxed wine uh, consumption cadence because it's dispensed via spigot, uh, yep. <laughs> which is which you know that's mm-hmm. that's a lifestyle that I'm slowly <laughs> absorbing and uh, adopting as my own. So I've been I'm a big big Boda Box boy in the New Jersey suburbs right. these days. It lasts a while too, right? <laughs> yeah, it lasts <laughs> forever. Uh, it's supposedly eco friendly. I mean, I don't know what happens to it after I put it in the recycling bin, um, out of sight, out of mind, which is basically the working definition of the American recycling system (laughs) anyway. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it says it's getting recycled and that's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Do you have a favorite? I've been drinking a lot of the, (laughs) this is embarrassing, uh, on the drinks (laughs) podcast here. I've been drinking a lot of the red blend, uh, just (laughs) we're hitting all my favorite things that I think people like shit on unnecessarily boxed wine red blends go for it Dave. yeah um yeah recycling um yeah, <laughs> yeah the, in new jersey suburb. that's right that's right red blend you know it's a big, a big old bag of red blend i go through my wife and i go through like probably one a week or so so you know that's uh, that's a fair amount of red blend that we're consuming and uh it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good for us. Yeah, you and everyone else. Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what uh, what are you guys drinking these days? Uh, well, I was gonna say I've been also drinking a lot of red blends, but uh, not not out of a box. I was actually over in uh, Eastern Washington this past uh, weekend for uh, a little wine road trip with uh, the wife and the baby, um, and that was really nice. We visited some wineries. Um, that we like and some people that we know, uh, but we were there in large part for uh, a, a kind of a kickoff for uh, a wine, I guess, a, I'd say a wine brand or, or a or a new uh, label for a winery that we like a lot. Um, the wine label is called um, The Devil is a Liar. Cool. Uh, and it's all centered around sort of these Grenache dominant blends sourced from this really crazy vineyard um, on. So Red Mountain is this kind of highly acclaimed appellation in uh, the eastern part of the Yakima Valley in Washington. And it's mostly known for growing Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Syrah as well. Um, but someone got a wild idea. So it's, it's also like kind of a, a south facing slope. It's not really a mountain in any real sense of the term. It's not that tall, but it kind of stands by itself in the this part of the valley. And so it... Um, someone got the idea of like, let's plant a vineyard on the basically on the backside, just over the crest of the mountain or hill or whatever. And it's this crazy wild, like 
super rocky, like windy, like kind of batshit crazy site to plant vines. Um, but there's something in that that's like sometimes some of the some great great wine comes from places that seem like they uh, probably should not have vines in them. So um, this is my first chance to try a red wine from that vineyard. It's a relatively new vineyard. I've had some whites from up there as well. Uh, it was really cool. Um, so yeah, it was uh, Devil's a Liar. Uh, very kind of a fun wine for us and uh, a good excuse to get out of Seattle for for a weekend. So. Nice. The devil, the devil is a liar. Sounds like a taking back Sunday album. Doesn't it? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, well, there's uh, definitely, yeah, there's definitely a lot of like, I was kind of like asking the winemakers like, so how did you come up with the name? And they're like, <laughs> well, you know, we kind of just kind of just liked it. And, you know, and I was like, okay, there's probably a story what? here that you don't want to tell me. Cause then I'll share it with, uh, you know, a larger audience, which is, is fair. That's but, like when you, know. you name your kid like Caden or something. You were like, oh, we kind of just liked it. That's okay. Like, I understand mm-hmm. that explanation. The devil is a liar is extremely specific to just kind of like <laughs> it and name a vineyard after it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like enough. you're definitely trying to appeal to a younger audience with that one, right? Uh, yeah. Younger and godless, Joanna. <laughs> or I guess extremely popular. Well, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, the, the yeah. devil is a liar feels like very, uh, you know, in – in line with, uh, you know, church teachings or whatever. Is that what the Zoomers are up to these days? Just praying? I, uh, maybe. Tell, let oh, us know, folks. Vine's their podcast just breaking new trends wide open. Yeah. Zoomer <laughs> wine lovers. Box wine, box they, wine they, and prayer. And prayer. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. You know, put that in a white paper. We'll sell that for 600 bucks via PDF. I think we're in business, guys. <laughs> yeah. Why are we giving it away for free? <laughs> All right, Joanna, Joanna, get us back on track here. What what have you been drinking lately? Oh, I've had a number of really great and interesting spring drinks for an upcoming package. Mm -hmm. But one that stands out that I actually first tried earlier in the year um, is the Sierra Nevada Sunny Little Thing, which they launched in January as the next in their Little Thing lineup, Um, Hazy Little Thing being the original. Um, It's a citrus wheat ale. It's got big orange notes. And is really juicy. It not it wasn't ideal for January per se, but on a warmer sunny day, which is when I had it, it was really delicious. So, so that was a standout of recent recent drinking for me. Um, but yeah, on to today's topic. Dave published a piece or a few pieces actually with us last month or the last couple of months on the changing landscape of craft beer, kind of as a result of the changing business of craft beer. And so we thought it'd be great to have Dave on today to discuss exactly exactly like what's going on there and the evolution of the craft beer sellout quote unquote as it were um dave maybe you can back us up to last decade when this tension first arose in craft beer sure let's start let's see i guess like the year is you know 2010 or so you've got your blackberry you're on bbm with all your friends <laughs> uh uh you know it's obama's second term there's kind of the re- the great recession is just in the rear view some people have bounced back some people haven't just a, a younger time right and um when we first started seeing uh acquisitions in the craft beer industry they kicked off right around this time. So the most, the biggest, like most high profile one that kind of kicked things off earliest was when Anheuser-Busch acquired uh, Goose Island in Chicago in 2011. Um, and that wound up sparking um, certainly uh, some outrage and some apprehension from within the industry. Um, and the industry, you know, was communicating that outwardly to customers, um, you know, trying to kind of figure out 
what the best messaging was around, you know, making sure that people understood that because Goose Island was now acquired by the biggest beer company in the world, they were no longer a quote unquote craft brewer. Um, Mm -hmm. And over that ensuing decade, um, Anheuser-Busch acquired, I think, nine or 10 additional breweries. um, And Molson Coors picked up three or four. Um, I want to say they didn't acquire quite as many. Constellation got in there and bought Ballast Point for a cool billion dollars that they dumped just a few years later for like $50 million. So that was a really Mm -hmm. bad investment. Uh, Heineken scooped up one half of Lagunitas and then the other. So there was a lot of acquisition going on by the big, you know, what industry players would call strategics um, or what we might call macro brewers. That's kind of how you know, people outside the industry think of the big guys. Um, but they were, they saw a lot of growth in craft brewing and, and, you know, when you're a big opportunity, yeah, a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And when you're a big CPG company, whose flagship brands like the Bud Lights and the Miller Lights of the world, uh, are, you know, beginning to slow down and give up share and, um, you know, really you're not getting the same growth out of them that you once were, you go to where the growth is and, and big companies like that have a lot of trouble developing, um, you know, innovation products in house. Um, there's, it's just much bigger, uh, and, you know, much more difficult to kind of bring things to market in a nimble, agile way. Mm -hmm. And so the, the strategy becomes, you know, why not just buy the, buy the companies that are doing the cool shit. Right. And so that's, that's why we saw that sort of acquisition pattern play out over the course of the last decade. And, you know, there was a lot of cultural angst tied up in these Mm -hmm. decisions. We would see, you know, I refer to it as like gnashing of teeth, right? Like there's a lot of flag in the sand, you know, this is who we are. Like once you cross this line, you're no longer one of us. You're no longer a part of the craft brewing industry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, people like Dick Cantwell at Elysian, which was acquired by uh, Anheuser-Busch midway through um, the the past decade. You know, he detailed, and I started the story out this way, he detailed experiences where at their brick and mortar tap rooms in, uh, in the Seattle area in the, in the Pacific Northwest area, people would, you know, after the sale would march into a tap room, order a pint of beer and then dump it on the ground uh, as, as kind of like a, yeah, real, just big normal behavior, you know, <laughs> as a way of showing how upset they were with, um, with Elysian for taking this, taking the the buyout, you know, being being right. sold off, right? And you know, there's a sadness to it, certainly. I mean, Dick uh, himself was opposed to that sale. Um, his other partners, I think, were in favor of it, and he wound up not having the, you know, the the vote uh, in in the favor of staying independent. But more generally, like the breweries that uh, that were acquired um, and that, that put themselves up for sale. Uh, during that time, you know, a lot of the brewers and founders were instrumental in building the scene, right? Like that, they were they were the ones uh, in you know the eighties and nineties and early two thousands who were you know really laying the groundwork for for the industry as we know it today, um, establishing relationships with distributors, proving the concept of you know, craft beer in a grocery store environment, in, you know, a sports bar environment, right? Like they broke a lot of ground. And so it was very, um, you know, it felt like a betrayal uh, to others within the industry to see, you know, their comrades, quote unquote, or their, uh, 
you know, their, their, their fellow, uh, fighters in the battle against big beer, um, you know, turn, turn sides and take the money and run, so to speak. And mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a reductive explanation of it, but that is, uh, by and large from 10,000 feet, that's what we saw play out in the, in the craft brewing industry in the U S last decade. So I want to ask you a question about this and, and kind of how this attitude, as you uh, describe in that piece, how it, how it may be changed. And and I'm wondering if in your, your opinion, Dave, did the change, the sort of what you would say now is kind of the like, I don't know, um, sort of just general disinterest in that kind of like uh, protest and, and the gnashing of teeth that when, when sales do happen of, of uh, craft breweries now, it just doesn't generate the same angst. Is that more in your eyes about a recognition within craft beer that just people who, you know, individuals, uh, you know, partners, whoever starts these breweries, at some point, they they likely need an exit strategy unless it's going to be a, a generational thing. And that that exit strategy mm-hmm. can look a few different ways. I mean, obviously, you have you had New Belgium like selling to their employees, but then obviously being scooped up by a, by a big cooperative or a big uh, conglomerate. So is it is it more just that people have said, like, you know what, we can't fight this. This is just the reality for some of these businesses that, you know, as the founders get to retirement age, you know, there's there's only so many exit strategies for something like a brewery um, where you're, you know, you you want to keep it going, but you yourself don't want to do it. Or is it more about just the changing economics for craft beer more broadly? And that, like, now I think I almost get the sense, uh, and I'd be curious if this is your sense as well, that, like, people in the industry are, like, heartened by anyone wanting to buy a craft brewery because like <laughs> the, the industry uh you know as you said on a previous appearance you know it's it's stuck with me you're like you know is craft beer a legacy uh product at this point and like i think there's an argument to mm-hmm. be made that like anyone getting anything for their for their craft brewery in a sale is like to be celebrated these days i am yeah triumphant <laughs> yeah it's a good distinction to draw out i mean i would i would i would probably toss one additional thing in there um, as we consider, you know, why the shift has occurred, um, I think the business aspects that you outlined are certainly driving forces, right? So, you know, the idea that these founding fathers, quote unquote, I mean, they weren't all men, but the overwhelming majority of them are. So we're going to refer to them generally as founding fathers of the craft brewing industry, uh, you know, have gotten to the point where they need an exit strategy. They've poured, um, you know, 40 years of their lives into, the business and, um, you know, they want to cash out and enjoy their retirement. And we saw that, you know, play out, I think most recently with, uh, Larry Bell, Bell's, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, he's 63 years old. Um, there was no real succession plan in place. His daughter had, I think at one point, um, you know, taken over the business, but then ultimately decided it wasn't for her. It wasn't a role she wanted to play. Um, and you know, at that point, what's, what's Larry Bell going to do, right? Like he's, he's got a, and the business can't just go up and smoke. He's got workers. He's got, uh, he, he rightfully probably wanted to see his legacy live on. Um, and so you go look for looking for a buyer. Right. And, and that is certainly one narrative. Um, the other narrative, yeah, Zach, that, that you point out is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the word, the buzzword of the moment in the, in the industry is headwinds, but craft brewing even prior to the pandemic was facing mounting headwinds in the form of, slowing growth and, you know, um, crowded, uh, distribution channels where it was very difficult to differentiate from the other 9,000 breweries that were, um, trying to get their, 
uh, IPAs into the same, you know, supermarkets and onto the same tap towers. So it, it, it was it, it was a difficult period even prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic really did the craft beer industry no favors. And yeah, I think to some extent it is. Uh, reassuring or maybe like soothing to the collective ego and uh, and maybe looks a little bit like a safety net to see appetite uh, for craft breweries as assets still there from the buy side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's comforting to some extent. Um, and certainly with some sources I talk to, it's, it's nice to be reminded of like, oh, we are we are still generating value. If we do what we know how to do best, like we, there's value in the marketplace for that expertise and for that, you know, for that um, uh, uh, the business that we're building. The one like factor I just wanted to kind of layer on top of this, which is more cultural, is a lot of the people who grew up, quote unquote, drinking craft beer um, and really gravitated to it in their 20s uh, mm-hmm. and kind of made it the young uh, hip product, you know, that was in a lot of the cool second tier cities um, and kind of revamping industrial districts and, you know, was was a cultural phenomenon because of uh, the young drinkers attracted. The, those young drinkers are, you know, mid thirties or even f- pushing 40 now, and they are no longer the, the cool uh, consumer base, you know, that they're not the coveted mm-hmm. drinking demographic anymore. And they're not as engaged in, you know, like shit that doesn't <laughs> directly affect them anymore, right? They have, they have yeah. kids. They're worried about mortgages. They've moved on with their careers. Like they're not necessarily the ones like, re- you know, obsessively refreshing the beer advocate forums to figure out like, you know, whether or not like Blue Moon is going to lose the lawsuit that a craft brewer brought against them for claiming it was artisanal, but it's actually mass produced, right? Like people, yeah. people have moved on and, and some of the biggest true believers on the consumer side naturally start aging out of it and, and there's no one to pick up the torch behind them. Yeah, I was going to I was going to add that as well, because I feel like as somebody who's, you know, not really super familiar with the, I guess, politics or business behind all of this. And now that there are over 9,000 craft breweries in the country, it just seems like it's something that would be so hard to keep track of. Um, you know what I mean? And especially with like the, the blurring lines of what is and isn't craft these days as well. Um, I just feel like, yeah, who has the, who has the time, like you said, Dave, to really, to really, uh, get up in arms ab- about this. Yeah, I think, you know, at one point, yeah, kind of at its very, at its zenith, right? Like the people would refer to craft brewing as a movement, you know, more than it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've made this distinction before when I've written for Vine Pair and elsewhere, like there was a time when uh, people really believed that they were doing something different in this product. Yeah. That that it was more than just a, a consumer packaged good. That that we were that they were changing the uh, the way we thought about you know commerce and produce and community. Mm. You know, one narrative that I, I'm pretty sympathetic to when I consider sort of the arc of the craft brewing industry in this country is that uh, craft beer got freighted uh, with a bunch of expectations or burdens that it was never going to be able to carry. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, once people start aging out of it or start 
you know, times get a little tougher uh, and the business gets more competitive and, you know, some of that, you know, narrative sheen wears off. Um, yeah, I think, you know, people start to realize like, oh, wait a second, like this is really just a business and I'm not really, as a consumer, I'm not going to make my personality, you know, about a business like this in the same way that I might have been more willing five years ago or 10 years ago to buy into it as a movement. Right. Yeah. The idea yeah, I mean, of craft beer as a, as a personality. As an identity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why I think like it makes so much sense to me that when it was considered a movement last decade that people were so upset because they really, they had this identity that was attached to it that, like you said, felt betrayed. Yeah. People felt, I mean, I remember Dick Canwell telling me like, you know, it, it, it hurts. I forget exactly how he said it, but it hurts that, you know, we have seen that the macro brewers are kind of able to hit us where we live, I think is how he phrased it, right? Like there was this idea that they, that the industry was getting attacked. Um, and, and, and you don't, you know, certainly like people use the language of, uh, of combat all the time in the business world. Um, but it, it felt very personal, um, in a way that a lot of business really doesn't, um, or at least isn't framed as, um, and, and I think that's largely gone by the wayside as, again, like the, the business has gotten tougher. Um, and you know, the realities of operating successfully in a crowded field as your, you know, as tastes change, um, has really set in for these brewers. Uh, some of that artifice, um, and some of that narrative has just fallen by the wayside because it, 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 it's, they can't, they can't support it. They're too busy, you know, focusing on keeping their business afloat, you know, however they can. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something I wanted to kind of pivot to is is this sort of notion of, you know, kind of where is craft beer at this moment? And, and you know, you mentioned, Dave, that that even before the pandemic, there were some real warning signs for craft beer, whether it was, as you described, the sort of slow aging out of, um, you know, craft beer's most devoted drinkers out of either, you know, kind of being the most coveted demographic or just into a phase of life where, where probably they're drinking, they may be drinking less in total, they're maybe drinking less beer, especially, you know, frankly, less, uh, you know, craft beer, which especially when we're talking about things like IPAs is, you know, higher calorie counts, um, things mm-hmm. like that, than a, than a, you know, a, a light lager or something like that. And, and then, you know, kind of set alongside this is, you know, the, the, what's going on with craft beer and how it's been, you know, maybe more than any other beverage alcohol category impacted by the rise of hard seltzers. So kind of right. we're, we're, you know, obviously any kind of story like this is going to have a lot of potential explanations and no one of them is going to be comprehensive. But if you were to try and kind of pin down what you think has caused craft beer's slump, what would you what would you attribute it to, Dave? I mean, I think it's just a maturing business, right? Like, I think that is like novelty by definition cannot sustain an industry, you know? And for the longest time, craft beer as a product was the novelty in the, I would say, in the entire beverage alcohol industry, right? I mean, spirits certainly with, uh, you know, craft distilling, small batch distilling had kind of drafted off that a little bit wine. We didn't see a ton of innovation in, I guess, Rosé is kind of, you know, the Rosé boom was kind of like the wine categories, you know, uh, uh, mainstream breakthrough, but craft beer had a very long and sustained period where it was doing new shit all the time. People were excited about the products they were producing, but that could not last. And I mean, even halfway through last decade, 
you started to hear from distributors t- complaining about what they would call rotation nation, right? Where, um, you know, b- big bar or big beer bars were opening up with like, oh, we have 30 taps. We have 50 taps. We have a hundred taps. Right. Um, and they would not keep kegs of the same beer on tap. They would burn through one tap and then they would swap it in for something new because that's what customers wanted. They wanted to taste something new. Um, that was a big problem for distributors. It was also a big problem for, you know, uh, producers where like they weren't going to be guaranteed that they were going to hold a tap line for more than, you know, one or two turns every couple months. Um, but that sort of presaged, I think the, the coming, you know, problem for craft beer as we wound towards the end of last decade, which is that at some point you cycle through pretty much everything, you know, beer can, can offer in terms of like new flavor profiles and tastes. Right. You know, and we see kind of it pushing that extremity um, certainly, you know, 2018, 2019, and, and more recently, you know, definitely the last couple of years with, uh, you know, very, very over the top adjunct, uh, like pastry slash dessert stouts, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, slushy kettle sours that are, um, uh, made with marshmallow and have sediment in the can and are like semi viscous. Um, you know, like those are, I would say like barely beer. And I don't say that from a snobbish perspective. I just say it to point out the obvious, which is that like, there's a common conception of what like beer is as a product. And I don't think like a, a, a <laughs> like a, you know, like a smoothie, uh, an alcoholic smoothie really fits that model. And, But to me, what that says is, among other things, drinkers were looking for new and exciting and, you know, uh, on, you know, novel beverages and brewers were having a tough time continuing to pull rabbits. Yeah, exactly. Like there were only so many rabbits they could pull out of the hat, right? Like we did sours, we did, uh, you know, (laughs) we're doing kettle sours now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Cold IPA, black IPA, like, and, and at some point it's like, you know, when you get into that spiral, unless you can continue to produce novelty, eventually the the consumer is going to move on to someone who does. And so that left the door open, I believe more than any, more than any of the culture, you know, aspects of it. Although I certainly don't think they helped craft beer. Um, But, but I think just the fundamental reality that brewers could not continue to serve and satisfy that, you know, desire for novelty in the, in the drinker. Um, I think that's what really led the, you know, led to its, um, slowing growth. Uh, and it's, you know, um, I would say like, you know, a little bit of an identity crisis as well. So do you think that like, you know, do you think that things will just kind of taper off and brewers will go back to not basics, but things that they enjoy doing versus, you know, trying to continue to innovate and do different things for consumers' sake? You know, it's a good question. I, I think a lot of brewers would like to do that mm-hmm. um, if you catch them at an honest moment. You know, I, I don't know of a lot of brewers that are like thrilled um, or at least, you know, they aren't willing to say publicly that they're thrilled with kind of the direction that beer is going vis-a-vis um, – you know, like some of the more over the top, 
products that you're seeing now on the market, right? The stuff with like cereal adjuncts and marshmallow adjuncts, shit like that, the smoothie beers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, as a business, uh, because it is, as we just spoke earlier in this conversation about, um, a lot of these companies have capital structures that are held over from the salad days, you know, the boom years, uh, where they took on a lot of debt, um, or they, you know, they did a bunch of, you know, fundraising, uh, if, you know, whether it was debt or equity, um, where they, they have to continue to deliver growth. And mm-hmm. right now the growth, uh, industry in craft beer is really, you know, if you can get a hot line of, um, of, of like, you know, double dry hopped IPAs that people are going to line up for and pay $25 a can for great. Like that would be awesome. And you can kind of print money and there are, you know, probably two to three dozen breweries in the country that can swing that strategy. And I, I think they're pretty limited. Um, more, more realistically, I think we're going to see brewers um, that are able to deliver a, like, you know, uh, a good, a good tightly curated variety of core beers, um, and, uh, maybe a seltzer, you know, um, I think they'll have success. I don't think you're going to see growth anywhere near the rate that you used to. And that can, that will be a problem depending on, you know, which brewery we're talking about and what their capital structure is, because it's, they may not be able to you know, pay off their obligations in other words. So the business aspect of it makes it interesting because yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of breweries, if the brewers were in charge would love to just go back to making, you know, lagers, right. Uh, and, and not really worry about it. Maybe like a nice balanced IPA. Um, but that's not what the consumer wants. And ultimately, um, the consumer is in charge in this business in a way that, even five, six years ago, they really weren't right that we used to, as a drinking public, we used to defer a lot more to brewers, uh, for our education and for, you know, acquiring taste, right. We were looking to them to tell us what was cool and what was exciting. I think there's been a, a big shift there in terms of restoring agency to, you know, the drinker, uh, to say, here's what I like. Um, I want something that matches that. Yeah. I want something that matches my preference that satisfies my, you know, drinking desire and not, you know, something that I should, I'm quote unquote, like I'm, I should be excited about. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way that's an interesting kind of evolution of the, the whole ethos behind craft beer in the first place, which I think, you know, really arose out of this notion of a lot of people not even necessarily re- knowing what they wanted, just knowing that what what macro lager was offering was not what they wanted. They were tired mm-hmm. of that, and that and that maybe they had heard about craft beer from someone they knew, or they traveled abroad and tried you know beers in Germany or whatever that were that were not just macro lagers, but that the American beer landscape was so homogenous, um, and you know into the 1980s. And now we've kind of reached this perhaps logical endpoint where, as you said, Dave, you know, breweries are not and brewers are not dictating to are not the ones out there discovering new styles and, and necessarily kind of dictating them to their customers. But it's like customers being like, well, why can't I have a beer that tastes like marshmallows and, you know, unicorn farts or whatever? Right. <laughs> and like and brewers now have to kind of be like, OK, well, I guess we can make that. 
maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I want to ask. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, just like as a quick interjection, and Zach, you and I have, I think, like traded comments about this before on Twitter or somewhere where it's like. Oh, that hellscape. Yes, we have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where it's like, it's either, you know, consumers are looking for something very specific and over the top, or they're looking for something very simple and straightforward. And craft beer has, you know, at its kind of finest, uh, really doesn't tick either one of those boxes. Um, you know, it, it does not, you cannot make a, you know, grape soda, uh, with alcohol in it and call it a craft beer, right? Like we would think of that as a, a hard soda, a hard seltzer or whatever you want to call it, but you wouldn't really consider that a craft beer on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's hard, like we said earlier to consider, you know, a kettle, a smoothie kettle sour, really truly a, a, a craft beer in the traditional sense. And so I think like whether the consumer is demanding something, you know, exorbitant and ridiculous, or they're just demanding something where they can, you know, turn their brain off and just not have to make decisions because they implicitly understand, you know, the, 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 you know, the taste proposition, if you want to call it that of the product they're buying. I, I think that craft beer has a little bit struggled to, to find its way um, between those two poles. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think there's there's an, a, a last element that I want to get your opinion on real quick here, which is that, you know, as we've sort of seen this evolving landscape, I think one thing that you pointed out uh, a little earlier in the conversation about the sort of challenge that this new landscape might might uh, um, present for breweries that were, you know, kind of established um, with a different sort of business model, capital structure, as you said. And I think one of those things to note and to come back to kind of the beginning of this conversation is I think we also saw in the 2010s and, and into maybe the latter part of that decade, the rise of breweries that were very clearly created to, you know, kind of catch the eye of big investors and and were kind of looking to sort of quickly um, bootstrap their way to large scale distribution, kind of figuring that if you if you can either get you know, a lot of market presence or alternatively, you know, get bought up by someone big um, and let them do that for you. That's kind of your, your play. It's, it's not really a, we're going to, you know, kind of slowly build uh, a sort of foundation in our home market and, and really be content there. And so I think that where craft beer still in my eyes kind of really does succeed. And, and again, I live in, you know, here in Seattle and I live near to, and I used to live right in the middle of one of the kind of big beer hubs of the city. And it's undeniable that even, um, you know, in COVID times and certainly before and now kind of as we're coming out of it, maybe, um, you know, you go into those, that area um, on a Saturday, a Sunday, hell, a Friday. And I mean, the breweries are packed. Like people still want craft beer, right? They still want to do that. They still enjoy the the experience. They still like the offerings. And yeah, some of those breweries are definitely, you know, maybe not quite all the way on the ludicrous end of the spectrum, but there's some, you know, they're, they're aware of trends. They have to be on top of them for sure. But, but that, that in one sense, um, the craft beers proposition is still, I think, very appealing to a a lot of people. It's just maybe that appeal is never going to be selling for reach you to the point where you sell for a billion dollars to constellation. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the days of selling a brewery for a billion dollars, it's hard to imagine them coming back anytime soon, at least not a craft brewery. Obviously I'm not talking about like a big diversified, you know, portfolio, but um, it's hard to imagine them coming back anytime soon just because they don't have the growth that would command, you know, like that kind of, you know, multiple of revenue, right? Like you can't get a buyer. Yeah. Right. There's only so much, 
so much, you know, kind of hype you can put on a brewery, but like at the end of the day, when, you know, a, a potential buyer is doing due diligence, they'll start chiseling away at that number in a way that they weren't willing to, or, you know, kind of got ahead of themselves uh, five, six, seven years ago. Um, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and Zach, you make a great point, which is that, and I, I think I, I try to always make the point in my stories, like, I don't think full flavored beer is going away. I don't think we're going back to the the age of, you know, fizzy yellow uh, adjunct lager. It, it, that seems extremely unlikely to me. And I, I, w- I definitely wouldn't argue that for that because, you know, everything that we're seeing, whether it's in the beer industry or just broadly in beverage alcohol or hell, even just broadly in consumer packaged goods is the American consumer wants more more interesting flavors, more novelty, more uh, local ingredients, more you know uh, uh, organic and uh, sustainable ingredients. Like those trends all point towards some staying power for craft beer as a category. And I certainly don't think it's going away. I also don't think tap rooms are going away. I mean, I have a piece uh, that's about to publish here at Vine Pair. Um, probably in the you know by the time this it will be published by the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the same day. Yeah. Perfect. So if you downloaded this, go back to Vine Pair and read the story. But, um, you know, tap rooms, I don't think are going away either because the value proposition still holds. Do people like to bring their dogs and sit in the sun and drink beer? Yes. Is that going to change? Probably not. I, I wouldn't bet on it, right? <laughs> like, um, but I do think that in terms of what that looks like from a business standpoint and who is still interested in buying these businesses because they see synergies with their existing structure. I think that that buyer, to the extent that it still exists, and some of the M&A guys that I've talked to, um, you know, they do believe that there's still buyer interest out there. It is not, it is not a matter of no one wants to buy a brewery anymore. The questions are, you know, how much money are we talking, obviously, but also like, where does it plug into our business? Because, all of the big strategics, all the macro breweries have already gotten their fill uh, of craft breweries. Anheuser-Busch InBev is not buying more craft breweries for a couple different reasons. They have a ton of debt. They're also very wary, or they're very wary of uh, provoking uh, Department of Justice, um, you know, like you know, on anti- antitrust concerns if they continue to consolidate power in that market. Molson Coors, uh, that's not, you know, it's not really a part of their strategy. It never was in the same way. And also they're very intent on expanding, um, you know, and becoming more of a modern beverage company, quote unquote. Um, so, you know, we're not seeing the macros make those plays. We're seeing, and more recently, uh, uh, companies with some strategic overlap outside of the beverage alcohol industry make their acquisitions because they see, you know, to use a very business brain term, like synergistic overlap, right? Like monster. I'm talking about monster. Oh, no, you hurt my brain. I dude. know. I know. Just fucking edit that out or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like we're talking about monster and we're talking about Tilray specifically. One is an energy drink bev- uh, company and the other is um, a cannabis company. And they see adjacencies and they see, uh, particularly in the case of Monster, see a really attractive existing distribution network and, uh, you know, expertise on, um, you know, getting beverage alcohol to market in the U.S. that they can just plug into their existing operation. Um, Tilray is a little bit different, but they see a lot of opportunities with the adjacency between cannabis and alcohol and the branding expertise that goes into selling these as lifestyle products. So there's, 
there's still buyers, um, you know, but are the businesses attractive and, you know, prone to high valuations in the same way they once were? Uh, it's hard to say. And, and again, it, you know, if you want to build a brewery that's local um, and is, you know, self-contained and um, has like a, you know, a, a sustainable business model that, you know, you're going to be able to continue to pay your 15 employees and, you know, pay yourself and, and serve the community. You can still do that. If you have taken on a ton of debt to grow very rapidly with an eye towards selling for a, you know, a 10 X multiple of your revenue three years down the road, if you make it three years down the road, which you may not, uh, you may find that no one is willing to pay that price. Yeah. I mean, we, we've also talked about this with the, the tap room thing too. And in terms of like, what makes sense for expansion and where for these breweries? Um, but yeah, probably not with the the end goal of um, being acquired or selling off. No, I mean, I think that, you know, when we're seeing taproom expansions, we're seeing them from breweries that are doing them because they want to grow in those spaces, not because right. they want to sell off like those assets. You know, I, I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think in the final analysis, those would be liabilities. You know, if you're tr- like trying to size up, like I, I think you're adding value if you're demonstrating on-premise expertise, but like you're not adding, you know, enormous growth potential. Those are not the type of assets that, you know, an acquirer is necessarily like banging down the door to to pick up. Right. Yeah. Well, this was all very interesting. Lots to think about. Um, Dave, thank you so much for joining us once again. So great to have you here. I'm sorry to always be the bearer of bad news. I don't know. Was it bad news this time or no? no I don't think so. No. I think well, it, honesty is, is appreciated. Something to contemplate. I well, think. La- yeah. last time I was on the pod, Zach and I made a, a wager that uh, that Coke was <laughs> not. Feel- yeah, what was the exact wager that inside of five years? Five five years, Coke. There will be a a, a, a Coca Cola branded uh, beverage alcohol product. That's right. And mm-hmm. I said no, there wouldn't. They would never risk their flagship on it. And you said I'm crazy. It's definitely going to happen. And I think <laughs> as of right now, uh, ninety. Six percent of the way, or four percent of the way through our uh, wager period, um, I'm still winning the bet, but there's a lot of time to go. <laughs> I feel like the the Vegas odds have shifted in my favor since that point. Yeah, I think, the, I think I'm the betting favorite at this point. I think that's right. Maybe I'm gonna have to go place another bet to hedge against this one. Maybe I'll <laughs> someone get me Tim McCurdy's just- number. I need to bet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you both so much. And Zach, I will see you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.